that, would you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We're dropping back into the book of Ephesians. Actually, the second week back in this series, as Mike Tucker did a great job last week for us uh, in Ephesians 5, in the passage that talks about husbands and wives. And um, I was just very grateful for Mike's ministry. I did get to hear the message last Sunday from my hotel room. And um, I just thought he did a great job. Um, being clear on the text, you know, a, a difficult text, a challenging text. Matter of fact, when Mike and I realized where his Sunday would fall in Ephesians, and we realized it was sort of the, the gender uh, marriage text, I said, you know, Mike, that's kind of a tough one. I said, I, if you want, I, I could take that, and you know, I, I'd be glad to do that one, and we could you know, pick another text for you or pick another topic for you. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I want to do this. And I was just so appreciative of, of his uh, clarity, his his study behind it, his research behind it, uh, his courage in saying things that aren't popular in our culture, uh, but helpful for the body and helpful for families. So I'm, I'm grateful to Mike Tucker for his ministry last week to us. And so here we are now in Ephesians 6, and it's really still um, Paul sort of giving practical instructions to families as this text, he's talking to children and fathers. And so the title of this morning's message is Honor Your Parents. And uh, I don't want the kids to feel singled out in here. And oh, This one's for me. This, this one's for all of us. Um, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of things in this text that we could pull out that will encourage all of us in Christ, uh, our relationship with the Lord, and our understanding of the family. So let's read it. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And now he quotes, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. We ask that you would speak through your word today. Lord, sanctify our hearts and our minds in this time uh, to receive from you gospel instruction and life wisdom. So we submit ourselves to you and your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here Paul quotes a command from the Old Code. He quotes a command from the Old Testament Law of Moses. Um, you know, a very popular command, a, a Ten Commandments command. Honor your father and mother. And then he quotes an accompanying promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Now here this apostle of grace is not suddenly dispensing of the message of grace and going... Actually, I know I've said for, you know, every epistle I've written, and I know I've been talking this whole book about how we're under grace and we're in Christ and we're not under law as a means of righteousness. But you know what? Let me bring a little bit of it in here because really we kind of are under law a little bit. So let's, let's balance grace with law. That's not what he's doing here. He's not saying we're, we're actually kind of under Old Testament law. And if you don't obey your parents, kids, you're going to die young. That's, that's not what's going on here. Remember how Paul viewed the Old Testament, that it was a pointer to the New Testament, that it was a foreshadowing of the New Testament, that it was a foretelling of the New Testament Christ. So as Paul is sharing here, we need to see it the way that this apostle of grace would have seen it, that there's a gospel picture here and there is a wisdom lesson for how to walk out our faith. And Paul is sort of connecting the dots between the gospel 
and the law of Moses and showing us how to see it properly. Now, one of the ways that's helpful for me in understanding how to view the law is what the reformers would have called, and you can see this in the Heidelberg Confession, what they would have called the three uses of the law. I'm not sure if you've heard of that phrase before or, or the explanation of that, but I want to just give you a brief explanation of uh, what the reformers would call the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is that it points to Christ. In other words, God's law has a ministry not to justify you. Matter of fact, Romans 3.20 is clear that it won't. It says no one will be declared righteous through observing the law. Rather, through it, we become conscious of sin. So the law's ministry is to point to Christ and to point to grace as our only means of salvation. In other words, the law is not supposed to commend us. I'm quoting and paraphrasing D.L. Moody now. He said the law was not given to commend us, but to measure us that we might see the way of salvation by grace through faith. And so that's the purpose of the law. It points to Christ. It points, it points to Jesus. It points to our need of salvation outside of our own merits and works because when you actually see the, the high standard of the law, there's no way to justify yourself. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God's law stops every mouth. It shuts you up and stops you from justifying yourself. And yet, I think the way the, a lot of people in the world and a lot of uh, legalists look at the law is we go like this. It's sort of a, a yardstick. It's sort of a movable you know, measuring stick that we're kind of close to and we, we kind of go up next to it and we go, hmm, you know, would God accept you? Are you good enough? Uh, yeah. That's, that's how a lot of people think, isn't it? I'm pretty good. Uh, or they say, I used to be down here slightly below it and now I've improved my life. I've matured. And so, yeah, I've done some bad stuff, but... I'm doing pretty good now. We sort of we kind of measure ourselves uh, and commend ourselves when when we see God's law, as if as if it were given to justify ourselves. I remember talking to somebody in the community um, about you know the church. Actually, it was about our wrestling club, and I was letting this parent know uh, before they got their kid involved. I said, "Just so you know, we're we're a faith based club, and we do talk about scriptures. We talk about Jesus." And he goes, "Well, yeah, I guess uh, my son does need some morals." You know, it's like immediately. He's thinking not salvation by grace through faith because the natural man doesn't understand spiritual things, the Bible says. He's thinking of the law. The minute he hears about religion, the minute he hears about scripture, the minute he hears about God, he thinks of law. And that's the way most people do it. And that's why some people don't come to church because they go, eh, not quite there. I don't even want to try, right? Or we, you know, measure ourselves by comparison. We go, well, you know, by comparison, most people are like this, but I'm, I'm a good person. I live morally clean, or I'm way better than that guy. I remember talking to uh, uh, another guy, had, uh, an unbeliever in my life that I was having breakfast with, and I just shared my testimony, and he's like, he's like, look, look. He goes, I get it. Religion has a purpose. It's good. He goes, but grace? I don't need grace. And he points out this other guy, that a mutual friend of ours that we both knew that kind of had a sordid past and was struggling to get his life together. He goes, he needs God. He's the one who needs it. I don't need it. What's he doing? He's going... I'm pretty good. That's how most people think. He doesn't understand God's purpose in the giving of the law. It was to measure us, not to commend us. So the way it's supposed to work is, you know, sort of like, you know, if the, if the height of this card was you and me, and this is the Empire State Building, the effect of the law is supposed to be that we stand next to it, and it's more like that. And we go... How could I ever be saved? I need grace. 
That's the way it's supposed to work. And so we should all sort of feel the weight of the law, that we've offended God, that we've broken His laws, that we need grace. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is its civil use. God's law is still useful, it ought to be, to help us to know how to structure society and government. Now, the United States is listening less and less to God's law, but it's still there embedded in our Constitution and in our founding documents. Checks and balances, for example. Our founding fathers believed in the nature of sin. They believed in the doctrine of sin. And because they believed in the nature of sin, they believed that if any one person controlled all the power, that that would corrupt them. As the famous quote says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So our founding fathers wisely, because they had an open Bible when they, in a sense, when they wrote the founding documents, they built checks and balances into our form of government because of the nature of sin in a fallen world. And so God's law has a civil use. Great Awakening preacher George Whitfield said that the law benefits even those who don't have faith in Christ in that it restrains them morally and makes our society livable. Justin Perdue from the Theocast podcast said the second use of the law, broadly speaking, is to restrain our corruption. Ligonier Ministries said this about the second use of the law. Though the law cannot change the heart, it can to some extent inhibit lawlessness by its threats of judgment, especially when backed by a civil code that administers punishment for proven offenses. Thus, it secures civil order and serves to protect the righteous from the unjust. So, it points to Christ, it's civil use, and then number three, we'll call it life wisdom. Where the law doesn't justify us, it can give us wisdom and guide us into how to live a life that beautifies the gospel, how to live a life that adorns what we believe about God. Again, Justin Perdue from Theocast says it this way, The third use of the law is to serve as our perfect guide for living in Christ. In Christ, we know that by faith we're reconciled to God and have peace with Him, and the law, therefore, no longer threatens us in any way. However, it does guide our living. God gave us his moral law in the Old Testament, and he's given us a number of imperatives in the New Testament that tell us how we're to live together as his church. All of those things are good for us. They guide our lives, and we seek to conform our lives to God's word by grace as we are already safe in Christ Jesus. This is a good thing for us. John Calvin would even say that the law is our kind advisor in Christ as we seek to conform our lives to it. I like that. God's law is a kind advisor. And so it doesn't threaten us anymore because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. We're not under law, we're under grace. However, it can give us wisdom and guidance into our lives and our families and how to live as the church. So now let's go back to the text and apply a couple of these things. How does this text and the laws that Paul is bringing out, how do they point to Jesus and what life wisdom can we garner from what Paul is bringing out? I want to look at two of the three uses of the law. Number one and number three. How does this text point us to Christ? And then number three, how does it give us life wisdom? It points to Christ. Let's read it again. Paul says, he quotes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And here's the quote. Honor your father and mother. And then he adds, For this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So how does this reflect the gospel? How does this Old Testament code point to a New Testament Christ? Well, let's pause and think. Is there another command with a promise in the New Testament? A greater 
command with a promise. Because the pointer's there. Look at the word first. He says this is the first commandment with a promise. Is there a second? Is there a future promise? Is there a greater promise than this one about living long life? Indeed, there is. The gospel command to believe and the accompanying promise of salvation. In the Mount of, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that moment when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain? And there on the top of the mountain, uh, Jesus was transfigured into his spiritual state. And he stood there with Moses and with Elijah. And they were sort of, the disciples who were there were sort of dumbstruck by this whole thing. And, and uh, Peter said, let's put tents up and stay here forever. Well, we're going to drop into that text in Luke 9, verses 34 through 36. It says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, speaking of the disciples, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and no one in those days said anything of what they had seen. So they were under a non-disclosure agreement. Family feud on the mountaintop there. And so the father spoke. He gave a commandment. And his commandment was, listen to the son. And what's interesting is, it's very significant that Moses was on that mountain. Because the accusation of Jesus in that day was, he doesn't listen to Moses. And there on the mountain, Moses is listening to Jesus. The accusation of the day was, we follow Moses. And God on the mountain says, listen Not to Moses, listen to Jesus. He will explain Moses. And later on on the road to Emmaus, he does. And so the command of the gospel is, listen to Jesus, listen to the King of grace, listen to the Son of God, and believe in him. That's the command. And this command comes with a promise, and we find that promise in John chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, remember that was the command, Whoever hears my word and believes in him and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. So where the old code would say, children, obey your parents. So you live a long life, a temporal life, you know, in this world. Now the the new covenant, the greater covenant, the new code, the greater code, the code of grace has a radically different and greater promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will live a long life. You will live eternal life. And so the old points to the new. Talk about a command with a promise. The Old Testament code is nothing but a pale foretelling of the coming Christ. You want to live a long life? Eternal life? Listen to the Father. And the Father says, listen to the Son. And in the midst of this, as we talk about how this command and this text points to Christ... Let's also remember our union with Christ. And that's very important when it comes to this commandment because none of us have kept it perfectly in our lifetime. None of us have ever perfectly honored our father and mother. Surely we have, but not perfectly. But Jesus did. The Bible says Jesus came under law, speaking of the law of Moses, to redeem those who were under law. Paraphrase. He obeyed where I didn't. He obeyed where I couldn't. He obeyed where you didn't and where you couldn't, where we didn't and we couldn't. Jesus is our substitute. He's not just our example, right? We've talked about that difference. He isn't just our moral hero. Jesus is your substitute. 
And if Jesus is only your moral hero and he's not your substitute, you're not a Christian yet. Because until he's your substitute, the gospel isn't getting down in there where it needs to go. He exchanged places with us. We didn't honor father and mother. Even when we did externally, we failed internally. We didn't honor our heavenly father. Even what we did successfully is overwhelmed by the failure of what we didn't do. Matter of fact, when Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, he shows that the the requirement of the law in the New Testament, including children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, or honor your father and mother, the requirement of the law actually in the New Testament goes far deeper. The implications of it go far deeper than it did in the old code. Because in the old code, and this is where the Pharisees were deceived, they thought if we can externally obey God's law, we're good. Okay, so in other words, I I haven't committed adultery, I haven't killed anybody, I honor my father and mother, I honor the Sabbath, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus comes along in Matthew 5-7 through and he goes, You've heard that it was said, Thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you say in your heart, you say to someone, You fool and you have unrighteous anger in your heart, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Whoa. The command just went far deeper than an external obedience. It went and searched the heart now. Unrighteous anger? In other words, you can murder somebody with your heart even though you don't murder them externally in God's eyes. Then he says, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And all the Pharisees are standing there going, yeah, we've never done that. And Jesus goes, but I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've broken the commandment. Whoa. The implications, the searchlight of the Holy Spirit go far deeper in the New Testament. And so when it comes to honor father and mother, we've, we've all fallen short of that commandment. But through believing in Jesus, which is the command of the gospel, we're united with Christ. And because we're united with him, the father sees us as perfect, obedient children, and we will receive Christ's reward. This is all summarized in the word grace. Unmerited favor. Undeserved favor from God. Unearned love from God. Now it's as if, because of our union with Christ, your record becomes his record. You know, I've used that illustration of a, you know, a kid who, you know, gets his, he's taken a test and he gets all the answers wrong and he knows it's going to be a failing grade. And Jesus comes along and switches tests. Jesus gets 100. He switches tests with the kid who failed. And Jesus puts his name on your test. And you put your name on his. That's the great exchange. Jesus, our substitute. That's what happened. Now it's as if we obeyed our earthly father and mother perfectly. It's as if we obeyed our heavenly father as perfectly as Jesus did. And therefore, we share in Christ's reward. And maybe you're sitting here going, that's not fair. Exactly. Now you're starting to understand the gospel. It's not fair. It's not right in our human, in human terms. It's grace. What if Jesus never came and did that? And what if I didn't honor father and mother as the law requires? Well, let's look at the law of Moses and how severe it was in this area. The law of Moses, remember, which was God's law for his covenant people Israel, not for the New Testament church, was severe in dealing with rebellious children. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 9. If there is anyone who curses his father or mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. 
and his blood guiltiness is upon him. In Deuteronomy 21, it expands on this law when it says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. That's the standard. That's the old code. So God's commandment in this area, honor your father and mother was literally life and death for an old Testament kid to rebel against your parents was a capital crime. I think a lot of parents in here are going, man, I still wish that law was still around. I mean, not that I would do it, but I, you know, at least threaten it. I'd bring it out and hold it over their head once in a while. But that's how, high, that's how high God's standard is. But if you look inside all of our hearts, the rebellious kid is a picture of what we all are spiritually. And the day of judgment is us being dragged before heaven's court with the elders sitting in the thrones, on their thrones as Revelation talks about, and God the Father and Christ the Son. And we are found guilty before the elders of the city, the heavenly city. But in that moment, when the stones are about to be cast, Jesus steps forward and says, yes, it's true. Yes, they were rebellious. No, they did not honor father and mother. But I took it for them on the cross. I exchanged places with them. There's no wrath left for them. The wrath of God fell upon me. The capital punishment fell upon me. That's what the cross was. Jesus was punished for our capital crimes. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so this text, again, points to the beauty of the greater command with a promise, the command of the gospel and the promise of salvation. So first use of the law, it points to Christ. So Paul is bringing out these laws here and they certainly do point to Christ, as I pointed out. And secondly and lastly, we want to look at it through this idea of what life wisdom can we gain from what Paul is uh, bringing out here in this text? What life wisdom is here? Yes, it's a picture of the gospel, but let's remember that we're also in the part of Ephesians where Paul is giving practical instructions and commands to the church and families as an effect and adornment of our belief in the gospel. So he's just talked to uh, fathers, or husbands and wives, in Ephesians 5, Mike just taught on that last week, and now he turns his attention to children and fathers. So again, this is Paul's pattern. Gospel, gospel, in his letters, gospel, 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 and then practical Christianity, practical Christianity. Indicatives, 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 imperatives. Doctrine, truth, faith in Christ, effect of faith in Christ. And so we're in that part of the letter now, and so let's look at this third use of the law as we look at these commands to honor parents. What life wisdom does this command to honor father and mother give us? Let's read it again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He says, for this is right. He says it's, it's right. He's saying honoring your parents is good. It's a good thing and brings 
blessing into your life. Yes, there's forgiveness if you disobey. No, there's not condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ if you failed in this area. But to do that is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's good for the family. It's good for society. And it's good for your life. It brings blessing into your life. Now, that may sound obvious to most of us in this room. But to a society like theirs, that Paul in the book of Romans said was given over to a depraved mind, where evil was called good and good was called evil, and to a society like ours that's doing exactly the same thing, a simple statement like that, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, might not be so obvious. A few bumper sticker comments from our culture today. Question authority has become the mantra of the age. Think for yourself and question authority. Now, there is a good version of that. Ben Franklin actually said something like that, that it's a citizen's duty to question authority. So I get that. Now, that said, this idea has been twisted by a society that has no bearing, no, no uh, moorings based in truth. And it's been twisted into a mistrust and a license to rebel against every kind of family and institutional and heavenly authority that there is. I see the idea of question authority like a gun. In the hands of mature people, that can be a good thing. But in the hands of an immature person, it's destructive and misused. So what ends up happening in a society that is, no longer has faith in God, no longer respects a truth itself, is that people don't actually think for themselves. They just feel for themselves. So authority comes along and asks for submission and obedience and respect because it's good for you. It's good and right, Paul says. It's good for your family. It's good for your life. And the moment it doesn't feel good, the modern person bolts. And you might say that submission begins where agreement ends. Do I have to agree with everything my authority says or does in order for me to submit to them? No, I don't. But I can still submit. And I can defer at times to my authority where I disagree. This doesn't mean blind submission to an abusive person or an abusive authority, by the way. But I think our starting point is, I'm going to do what I can to submit to the authorities that God has put in my life as much as I can and not bolt from that. And as an aside, something I've told my daughters and I want to tell young women in here, or at least tell young women through parents in here, is that if you're interested in a guy in your life, let me give you one really big acid test that'll determine whether or not this is a guy that's worthy of you trusting with your life and possibly in marriage. Look at how he responds to the authority in his life. If the guy has bucked every authority and everybody's against him and he's a victim and he doesn't listen to anybody and he's not teachable, okay, light turns red. Steer clear. Take a right. He's going left, you take a right. He's going north, you go south. Run away from that guy because you could be sure that he will mistreat you as well. If he doesn't listen to his mother, he doesn't treat his mother well, he doesn't treat his parents well, he ain't going to treat you well if you get into a marriage or a long-term relationship with him either. Okay, that was for free. Back to their regularly scheduled program. (laughs) So Paul begins here as he's talking to children with the first classroom for authority that kids have, and that's the family. And he says, honor them. That word honor means to esteem, to hold in high regard, to value. Children, value your parents. They're, they're of great, make them of great worth in your life. Go out of your way to reach out to them. Go out of your way to respect them. Go out of your way to honor them. Go out of your way to call them 
You know, practically, there's times when it's good to just go out of your way to see him. Because it's mom and dad. And he says, doing this, and of course he's quoting the Old Testament, will give you a long life. And I want you to think of this practically. It's, it's obvious, isn't it? If a child is rebelling against his parents, he might not live long. He might be running for the pretty yellow lines in the road while the parent is yelling, Stop! Stop! You're going to die! But away they go. So it's obvious how this command to honor your parents works and why it's attached to long life. To disobey your parents is often to choose a path of death. I think that most parents are born with an innate desire from God for the good of their children. And listening to your parents, often you're listening to someone who has your joy and your best interest in mind. Now that can be twisted and that can go, that can go off the rails and, and, and does. I understand that. You know, it's the same idea of a steered conscience. The Bible says we're all born with God's law written on our hearts and you have to sin repeatedly and deny and reject God repeatedly in order to sear your conscience with a hot iron and burn away your conscience. But it happens. It's like the old buccaneer's diary. First time he killed somebody, he was tormented, couldn't sleep. When he did sleep, he'd have nightmares. Then he killed another guy. And then he killed another guy. By the end, it didn't even bother him anymore. He would laugh at it. Just cold-hearted, seared conscience. And so to disobey parents is to, in a sense, reject your own joy. And one interesting thing to note here is that there's no... There's really no expiration date on this commandment. Nor is there a condition that says, children, honor your parents, honor your father and mother, as long as your dad's in the faith. But if he's not, then throw him to the curb like a piece of trash. I can't stand it when I see, you know, young Christians come to Christ and in the name of Jesus reject their parents. When I, this command is binding to honor your father and mother without a, without a condition or, or about their faith or, their, or your age. I was challenged by this by my spiritual father, Rick Sinclair, years ago when um, my father and I had some tension um, when I was a kid because of his alcoholism. And when I left the home, I left him in some ways. And, uh, and I did not speak well of him. I wasn't safe for my father when I would speak of him. I was not a safe person for him. And Rick challenged me to speak well of my father and seek to remember the good that my father brought into my life and honor him any way I could. And so one of the things that became a habit in my life from my college days until now was anytime I had a major decision in my life, I would welcome my father into that decision, even though he's not a guy that follows Christ. And to this day, including our move to Tennessee, I... Uh, I've had the habit of welcoming him into every major decision in my life. And God can speak through him because he's my dad. Now, I'm not saying that I have to give blind submission to my father. It says to honor, right? So as we get older, their authority turns into influence. But I, I allow my father to influence me. I remember even when we planted this church, I called my dad. I said, so dad, <laughs> another great adventure for your son. He, he just, he doesn't quite get some of the decisions I've made about my life and my career because ministry is not a lucrative thing. Um, so he doesn't get some of that. So I call him and I said, Dad, you know, I'm thinking about planting this church in, in Avon. And uh, 
never done that before. I just, what do you think of that, Dad? And he goes, well, can you make money doing it? I said, well, um, you know, I mean, it, I guess it's kind of like starting a business. You know, eventually, hopefully, it gets healthy financially, but you got to be willing to go through the valley when it's not for a while. But, you know, I think, I think that if the church is, is giving the way the Bible teaches, I think that we'll be able to have enough to live, even though it might take some time. Well, okay. As long as you think that that's, you know, in the future and you're not doing something stupid. Okay, thanks, Dad. But I hung up, and I, you know, he he paid it. He pays attention to stuff that I don't pay attention to as much. I'm thinking about souls and revival and reaching Western New York and starting churches and sending out missionaries to the nations and planting other churches. And my dad's like, "Yeah, you're gonna have a paycheck on Friday." And so God just very practically spoke through my dad, and I said, "Yeah, that's something I need to pay attention to and really make sure that our vision and planning includes some wisdom around that area." And one of the interesting stories that um, really challenged me in this area was, it was during that season I was reading, just reading through the New Testament, and I came across the story of Caiaphas, the high priest, who was sort of the guy who authorized the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus, right? And so Caiaphas and the, the religious leaders were gathered together, and they're trying to figure out what to do with this revolutionary upstart Jesus. They, you know, they don't know, they don't recognize who he is, they think he's just disruptive to the relationship between Israel and, and, and the Romans. And they think he's a problem. And so Caiaphas says, wouldn't it be better for one man to die than for all of Israel to be led astray? And the Bible says, it's, it's, it's crazy, but the Bible says he didn't realize it. But as high priest of that year, he prophesied the kind of death that Christ would die. So here's this guy who's a, he's a criminal in heaven's eyes. I mean, the guy's got murder in his heart toward Jesus. And yet because of his position, he had a built-in authority and anointing from God because he was high priest of Israel at that time. He had a built-in anointing from God that he accidentally prophesied about Jesus. Now take that into the home. Your father and mother might not be perfect. You might not feel like at times, you're a very good father or mother. You don't, maybe you feel like, I don't really understand what God's will is for my kids. I struggle to see their future. I struggle to even know how to pray. Have confidence that because of your position in their lives, that kind of has a built-in authority and anointing from God, that even if you don't feel capable, even if you don't feel like you've got it all together and can figure it all out, watch how you pray. Because God might just accidentally be prophesying through you as you pray about your children's future. And for that very reason, I've learned that it's okay to call my father, even though he doesn't have the same walk with God that I do, or you know, follow Christ the way I do, or listen to the scriptures the way I do. I can contact my dad, and I can say, Dad, what do you think? And trust God to speak through him as one of the counselors in my life. It's just one of the ways that I've sought to honor my father. One final story. This one um, is from John Patton's biography. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, I think in the 1800s. Radical missionary story. And early on in his biography, if you haven't read it, by the way, it's it's a great read, John Patton's biography. Um, He talked about the moment when he was leaving home for seminary. And the way it worked out was he and his dad were walking down the road together and a certain place where they agreed they would part and he would sort of go on into the city and his father would go back home into the country. 
And he tells the story of that moment, and it's just very, really precious, and I want you to hear it. John Patton said, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in an almost unbroken silence. My father, as often was his custom, carrying hat in hand, while his long flowing yellow hair, then yellow, but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl's hair down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving on in silent prayers. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could. And when about to turn a corner in the road where he was, would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted to the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, his face set toward home, and he began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears, still his form faded from my gaze, and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often, by the help of God, to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it and then walking away, head uncovered, have often, often, all through life, risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing, as if it had been but an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when I was exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Pharisaism or legalism, but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins and temptations, but it also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes in all my Christian studies, that I might faithfully follow his shining example. You see what he's saying? He's saying my father's presence in my life, his, his impact in my life actually kept me from temptation. I didn't want to disappoint him. He said, it was, it's not legalism. What he's saying is, I lived as a loved person from that day on. And I remember the way my father loved me and it made me want to live a life that he'd be proud of. And in the same way as Christians, your heavenly father loves you so deeply. Jesus on that cross, Jesus in the empty grave, Jesus in his ascension to heaven, saying to us, now you go. Now you live it. Let us also live as loved people as we consider our Heavenly Father's love. Let us honor our Heavenly Father and let us honor our parents on the earth, whether they're alive or gone from us. Now, maybe you didn't have a shining example like John Patton did, and it's difficult to honor your parents. How can you honor them? You can honor them by forgiving them, by seeking to remember any good that God brought you through them by being a grateful person, 
Maybe you say, there's nothing to be grateful for. Then be grateful that in God's sovereign providence, He had you suffer under their care to lead you to the one true and great Father and to understand His grace in your pain. In closing, see the gospel. The command, the great command, the greater, the truer and greater command that comes with the promise, the promise of salvation. And number two, remember the wisdom in this commandment to honor father and mother. And let's apply it in our lives as children and in our lives as parents and one day or currently in our lives as grandparents. Let us teach these things and encourage these things. For as Paul said, it's good and it's right. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to you and your word. We thank you for these gospel commandments, which if we live them, will show the beauty of what we believe. That the Father gave the Son, and the Son gave himself for us, and we are loved people. So Lord, let what we believe about Jesus, let the effect of that be that we do live honorable lives, and lives that honor father and mother. And Lord, if we're children, pray for the children in here, that you teach them, Lord, to be a great contrast to the spirit of the age, which says, don't listen to them. You listen to your parents. What are you stupid? Think for yourself. Lord, I pray that you would rescue the kids in this room. Lord, the kids represented by the families in this room and in this church community, rescue them from the spirit of the age, which has lost its way. It's lost in the forest without a compass. Help them, Lord, to live honorable lives that where they honor father and mother. And Lord, let us see Jesus and when appropriate to see our parents as that guardian angel that we could live as loved people as well and live lives of honor. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.